Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that today's episode is going to be very um, interesting, you know, especially given all the all the events that are happening right now with Bitcoin, with the price going, you know, off the roof, Elon Musk, even Lindsay Lohan, you know, saying that Bitcoin is the future. Oh, my God. You know, where are we heading? But I guess we, without further ado, let's say hear it directly from our guest today. Let's welcome, please, Daniel Vogel. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, so thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you and to your audience. So originally born and raised in Mexico City. So how was life growing up there? It was great. I mean, Mexico City is a, is a little bit of a crazy place. You know, there's uh, 20 some million people that live here. And so it's a miracle when you open the faucet and water comes out. You know? And so it was, it was great. It was a great experience. There's a lot of stuff to do in Mexico. There's amazing food, amazing cultural things to do. It was, it was, it was just great. I think, it, you know, after, after living in Mexico, I went to live in Palo Alto, um, which was very charming and great, but I really missed the thrill of living in a big city. It's hard to, it's hard to replicate that. I'm sure you didn't miss the traffic of Mexico City because, oh my God, that is crazy. That's absolutely right. Those are exactly the things that I didn't miss. And the things that I now miss about Palo Alto is the the easy lifestyle that you can that you can have there as opposed to in this in this crazy metropolis. Absolutely. So so in your case, I mean, how did you develop that entrepreneurial bug? Because I mean, very early on you were already launching companies. So was it anyone in your family or or how did you get that influence? It's a good question. I think like when I look back, the thrill of starting things was always more about the thrill of doing something and less so about the thrill of starting a company. It was always about you'd see an opportunity or something that I enjoyed do, really doing or that I was really passionate about, which then turned itself into some sort of a larger project. But I never really consciously thought like, okay, I'm going to start this company that's going to do that. It was more like I had this passion for something and I wanted to explore that. And in the course of doing that, um, building a company ended up being the right, the, the sort of like the right path to, to grow that idea or that passion. You know? So then let's talk in your case about starting your first company. Obviously, your first company, one that you would start with someone that you didn't even meet, RC Movies. So tell us about this concept. 
Yeah, so I mean, I was a, I was a kid. The internet was just starting up to be a thing in Mexico, and I loved remote-controlled cars. And I would go online for hours to just read about remote-controlled cars. And eventually, I found something called the Web Ring. I'm not sure if if if, if your audience still knows what those are, but before search engines existed or were any good. The way that you would find similar content was um, websites would put something called a web ring on the bottom of the website where you would sort of like, you know, go to one page and then you would click on the web ring and it would take you to similar pages. And the people of the web ring sort of like um, controlled who was admitted and who, and who had to get kicked out of the web ring. And I found this web ring of like remote control cars. And in that web ring, there was this Australian guy who was posting videos of his cars doing nice stunts. And I thought that was amazing. And I connected with him on ICQ, which was the messaging platform of the 90s. I still know my ICQ number. And we would chat for hours. And he taught me everything electronically. He taught me how to connect my video camera to my computer and how to import video into my computer and how to and what software I could use to edit it. And then he, he, he sort of showed me a little bit of how to program websites. And I started programming my website. And basically what happened was that we would be the top two websites on the web ring. He was the, the number one and I was always the number two. And one day I told him like, would you consider doing this together? Like, should we just do a nicer website, you and I? And, and, and we created this thing called RC Movies. And we became the largest repository of online videos related to remote-controlled cars. This was before YouTube existed, before it was easy to upload and manage content online. And it was, and it was a lot of fun. And um, then we ended up adding advertising, and then we had, you know, People would reach out to us because they wanted them. They wanted us to do videos of their remote-controlled cars or edit their videos, and it was and it was super fun. And uh, and after a while, it it became you know one of the largest remote-controlled car websites on the internet. It was featured on various magazines, and and yeah, that's that's basically the story. Uh, at some point, I think we both grew up a little more and we became a little bit less interested in remote controlled cars and probably more interested in 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 hanging out with friends or 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 perhaps girls i'm not sure what what i can't remember exactly but we slowly sort of abandoned it um and we ended up sort of selling the selling this thing to a competitor that was called rc videos um and 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 we handed it over to them (laughs) so what was the big lesson learned during these say five years with rc movies the biggest lesson was just the power of the internet. Something in my life changed when the internet appeared, right? Like I loved remote control cars before I I, I, I accessed the internet and, uh, and I had no idea how to edit videos and I had no idea how to connect with like-minded individuals anywhere in the world. And then suddenly I had this tool at my disposal that allowed me to do all of these things, to connect with other people, to connect and engage with folks that had similar interests to me, to learn from them, to enterprise with them. And it was just a ton of fun. It was just, uh, uh, it was really, really a lot of fun. So then let's fast forward a little bit because at this point you decide to pack the bags and and come to the U.S., and you studied at Stanford. So I'm sure that that perhaps influenced even more your uh, perhaps hunger towards being you know, or continuing the uh, journey of being an entrepreneur. So how was that for you? Yeah, so Stanford University is a phenomenal place that really pushes forward people's 
desires um, and, and, and sort of capabilities to, to be entrepreneurial. It's, uh, it's a phenomenal place because they really, they, they teach you the stuff, they teach you the history, they ring folks that are entrepreneurs and, and who are incredibly exciting to watch. You know, in my time there, we got the chance to hear from, from, from a lot of really phenomenal individuals, right? Like we, we, we had the chance to hear from Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, we were like, uh, you know, Google founders, uh, Peter Thiel, and 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 PayPal. It was it was just a ton of fun, right? It was just it was super inspiring. And um, and 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 given my love for for cars and stuff, I thought I wanted to study mechanical engineering. And when I was there, one of the one of the nice things of of the sort of like liberal arts schools is that you get the chance to take classes in a bunch of subjects and I ended up taking classes in computer science and I already knew how to program a little bit and it was just obvious to me when I started taking those classes that I wanted to go in deeper there and um, and ended up studying computer systems engineering and economics and and obviously that had a tremendous impact on who I am today but one thing that is interesting is now you are in Stanford you are exposed to all of these incredibly inspiring stories and as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. But here after Stanford, you choose the route of doing the nine to five. So why did you go and work for Quantcast? Right. So I, I worked at Quantcast as a summer intern right before, right before graduating. And Quantcast was a very small company. Uh, they, they, they had just raised a little bit of money. And, um, and I just loved it. You know, it, it, I would say that it was hardly the nine to five. I was working at all hours trying to get uh, built software for this uh, for this company, and it was it was an incredible school. It was an incredible school because I was able to see. Uh, I got very close to the to the management team at Quantcast. I did special projects for the CEO for a tiny bit, so I was able to sort of like lead their first acquisition, understand how we were going to organize ourselves from a strategic perspective, build a bunch of the of the pieces. And even though I was very young at Quantcast, one of the things that um, one of the things that was very different, or that where I got really lucky, was that. They put me on like a little skunk works project that no one knew at the beginning whether it was going to become relevant or not. And it became like the way in which Quantcast monetized their business model. And so and so it was a very different ride. I, it, it was a startup, but a startup where even though I was very junior, I got a lot of visibility into a lot of things. And 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 so it was it was just a lot of fun. It was it was a great school. It was a tough problem. We were trying to do you know if anyone in the audience knows about online advertising, we we're starting to do programmatic ad buying. And so it it combined very well sort of my passion for economics because it, it you know there was like all this auction theory that was going into place and, and, and how should you price things. And then obviously the, the, the engineering component of it, which was how do you build these systems at scale to process these, these, these real-time programmatic ad buying opportunities. And, and it was just a ton of fun. But I always had the bug. I always had the bug of doing my own thing. And Quantcast was so thrilling that it, it you know, I, I ended up spending about four years at Quantcast. Um, I started as an engineer and then moved over to product. 
but um but it was obvious to me that i wanted to do i wanted to build my own my own thing at some point and it was at quancas that i found out about bitcoin a really good friend of mine from venezuela taught me uh, told me one day have you read about this thing i i'd never heard of bitcoin before i went into my bedroom and uh and the next thing i knew was it was daylight and i'd spent the whole night reading about bitcoin and it became a huge passion of mine to the point where people at Quancas would call me the Bitcoin guy because I would just talk and talk and talk and talk about Bitcoin. And I remember having conversations of folks telling me like, aren't you afraid that Bitcoin is already $10? Like, isn't that crazy? And, uh, and here we are today at uh, over $40,000 a coin. That's amazing. And for you, you had that, uh, developed that love and that passion already for Bitcoin, but perhaps... You know, jumping ships and and going and doing your MBA gave you a little bit more perspective in the journey of bringing this idea of Bitso to life. So tell us about this. Right. So even though I loved Bitcoin, I wasn't really ready to start a, a company in the space. Um, it was very early on Bitcoin days. Bitcoin was used uh, very very little and fascinating, but but unclear where where it was going to end up in. And so. I had gotten into Harvard Business School and I decided I'll go do this MBA. And while I was at the MBA, I basically spent um, the whole time at the MBA thinking about Bitcoin, talking about it, um, engaging with professors, with students, with faculty, with uh, administrators on the subject, joined the, the, the MIT Bitcoin Club, started the, business, the, the HBS Bitcoin Club, uh, you know, met with the, the community at large. Um, companies like Circle were starting up in Boston. And so, you know, went to their launch party and tried to meet with people who were just in the space at the time. And um, and basically, it, it was obvious that something very magical was happening, something very special. And my conviction around this technology as a potential future catalyst for a significant amount of change it just got reinforced and reinforced over time to the point that, um, you know, about halfway through, I just could not stop thinking about it. I did an independent project on Bitcoin. I worked on a small project with a friend over the summer on Bitcoin. I, you know, I, I would just write all of my papers that I could around Bitcoin. And, 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 and so then at some point it was like, you know, someone just told me, you spend all your time talking about this. You spend all your time dreaming about this. You, you like, you're so passionate about this. Why, why don't you just go in and start a company here? And it was at that time that I met my co-founders that had been working on the idea of, uh, of an exchange in Mexico. And, um, and I got involved with them and over time decided to, to join them and, and, and basically do Bitso. Uh, right after business school. I basically, the, the day that I graduated from business school was the day that I wired money into the entity that we had created to capitalize it and start working on this, on this, on this thing. So it was, and, 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 and that's been the story ever since I've been building at Bitso for the fa for the past almost six years. That's amazing. So then tell us about Bitso. What is the business model of Bitso? Right. So when we started, the idea was we just need to bring access to people and people want to access Bitcoin. And if you're in Mexico, it's impossible to do so. Today, we're the largest crypto platform in LATAM. We have operations in Mexico, in Argentina and in Brazil. We, uh, we do have an, an exchange product, which is sort of like the first product that was built on, on, by players around the world in the industry, where people can go in and put orders to buy and sell at different price, prices. You create a market and then 
people are able to sort of trade trade with each other. And then through time, we've been adding more and more functionality, and now we offer a more holistic set of crypto crypto products. So for individuals, we have um, a very nice wallet where you can buy, uh, sell, send, receive crypto, and we're adding products to that in an ongoing basis. We have the ability to do um, real-time growth settlement, peer-to-peer payments now on that, and that's been growing pretty, pretty steadily and significantly. Um, then we have an area that's targeted towards businesses and helping businesses onboard into these into these um, uh, into this technology, make investment. Uh, you know, you saw the announcements that you mentioned of Tesla buying earlier this week, and so we help businesses like like that that want to acquire and get access to crypto. And then the third the third one is uh, the cross border bit. That last year we processed a. Uh, um, you know, over a billion dollars in remittances from the United States to Mexico. The United States to Mexico remittance corridor is the largest one in the world. Uh, last year, there were $40 billion that flowed, that, that basically went from the U.S. to Mexico. We processed um, about $1.2 billion of those. And, and, and so this is our mission of making crypto useful, being uh, put to work on, on these sort of different products and customer segments. That's amazing. And obviously, what a journey. But you've been at this for about six years. So I'm sure that, you know, on year one, you know, it was not as simple as it is now, because, you know, I'm sure that back then people were looking a little bit reluctant to to anything related to Bitcoin or or crypto. And now, you know, everyone wants to hear about it. So how has that transition been for you? Yeah, so it's been it's amazing to see what's happening today where basically people are begging us to spend time with them. Whereas, as you say, six years ago, it was us begging them to, um, to take a call. And, you know, when we, when we started the company, one of the first few things that we had to do was to raise a little bit of money to run the enterprise. And it was so difficult, right? Like the, the first time that we did our fundraise, it was super hard. You know, people would ask questions like, you know, this is this like this is a scam. This is a pyramid scheme. You know, people would people would tell us like, you know, what backs Bitcoin and this is crazy or this is just used for illegal purposes or this is criminal money. Like it was just it, that was a narrative. And so it was very difficult to get people to spend time with you. Even my friends, it was just difficult to get my friends. Right. Like I would pay my friends uh, in Bitcoin after, you know, going out to dinner. Now they all thank me or at least those that kept their Bitcoin really thank me because that's really appreciated over time. But back then it was like, oh, my God, you and your Bitcoins, this is just so stupid. Um, this is going to, uh, you know, pay me in real money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, and- the, 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 the change in, in interest, in perception, in the narrative over the last six years is just impressive, right? Now you have public companies making purchases of Bitcoin. You have institutional investors who've been ma- who've been making very big bets on Bitcoin. People are talking about Bitcoin overtaking the digital gold. People are talking about Bitcoin as the next settlement layer for 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 payments. Like it's just it's just incredible. Like the narrative has really changed, um, and that's been the work of of tons and tons and tons of people that have been working relentlessly for years no on 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 creating the infrastructure building the products lobbying the regulation convincing the customers giving access and 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 it's just been incredible it's just been an incredible journey but um but very very difficult 
to to do at some point in time. Now now it's just great. It's a, it's a, it's a good moment. But these are cycles. Um, we don't expect this cycle to last forever. We don't know how long it's going to last. We saw a previous cycle in 2017 that was smaller. Every cycle, it gets larger. But but this is also what makes the industry super, super exciting. No? And, and, and every time that we get to a next cycle, you see more infrastructure, you see more projects, you see more volume. And it's just um, all the fundamentals of a very rapidly growing industry are there. And that's that's incredibly exciting. And it seems that the last cycle was driven uh, mainly by retail investors. And now it seems that institutionals are making this push. So so what what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's great, right? Like the one of the one of the largest um critiques that we saw in the last bull run was oh these poor people are going to lose all their money. They're unsophisticated. They have no idea what they're doing. And unfortunately there's some truth to that, right? Like there were people that on on January or in December of 2017 they bought Bitcoin at $20,000. And it just went down and down and down, and it was over. It was under uh, twenty thousand dollars for basically three years, from December two thousand seventeen until December twenty twenty. And sure, now they would have doubled their money, but they, they, you know, there's people that probably exited their investment in Bitcoin at a big loss. Today, that that is that's a harder claim to make, right? Because these in the, the the people that are purchasing Bitcoin on at, at scale are incredibly uh, important and sophisticated investors, right? Like you have some of the most important investors in the world publishing their papers around Bitcoin. I mean, Ray Dalio at Bridgewater a few weeks ago published an entire, uh, and his thoughts on Bitcoin. And you read it and it's incredibly positive, right? There's some doubts as with anything in life, but it's a huge, huge 180 from three years ago where people were just still saying, you know, um, this is another tulips situation. Uh, this is this. You know, there's nothing behind this technology. There's no fundamentals. There's no value. You still get people like that, very sophisticated and very smart people, like you know Charlie Munger. Don't don't like this technology, and that's fine, right? We're not going to be able to convince everyone, but it's amazing that now you have people that have really put in the work, really thought about the P, like the place that Bitcoin uh, and the role that Bitcoin plays in today's society. And they're making big bets around investment in the in the space. And that and that I believe is 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 very telling, right? It's it becomes harder and harder to dismiss this thing. And and that's exciting for us working on the industry and for those of us that, you know, we're 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 trying to basically beg people's time uh, you know, six years ago, and, and and it's exciting. It's very exciting to see this. And how much capital have you guys raised today? So we just closed a round of sixty-two million dollars in December. That's the largest round we've done. It's the largest round in crypto in Latam so far. Hopefully, I won't be able to be to be making that claim uh, much longer. I would like to see bigger rounds in in the region. But um, but today we're we're happy to be to be holding that um, that title for now. Prior to that, we had raised much smaller rounds, you know. So so in in aggregate, Bitso hasn't raised more than eighty eighty million dollars, and the and 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 the real chunk was last December on that round that we that we announced. We were getting 
um, investors that are investing for the first time in a crypto company, Kasek and um, and QED, who are investors in company like in companies like Nubank, um, like Creditas, that are Quinto Andar, which are these amazing uh, you know companies that uh, that have been getting built out in the region, and we're very lucky to welcome both Kasek and QED into our cap table and to be working alongside with them into into our mission of making crypto useful and. And, and making this accessible to to the region. No? So what do you think was for you guys a turning point? Because, you know, you guys were rejected quite a bit by VCs early on. You know, I'm sure there was a point in time where all of a sudden everything fell, fell into place and you're like, wow, you know, they, we're going to make it happen here. So you get, you get in, in, I think in your entrepreneurship um, journey, you get a few of these little moments in time, right? Like the first time that we got a, a really significant check from an outside investor into the company was, it was just amazing, right? Like the happiness that that comes with that is unexplainable, especially when you're working really hard for that money, you know, when, when, when you've gotten rejected so much and then suddenly the check finally appears, it's just incredibly invigorating. And, and you know, the, the first time that this happened, I think the first check, the first large check that we ever got was about $100,000. And, and and we felt like it was going to happen, right? Like we felt like, okay, all the pieces are in place. Little did we know what was up ahead. But th- th- there's a few moments, for example, when Mexico decided to regulate the fintech industry and to give regulatory clarity. That was like a, a clear sign of progress. Um, when we've obtained uh, our regulatory licenses, that's been like a clear source of progress. And again, like a, a big turning point for the, for the company. Obviously, the last fundraise is incredible. The volumes that we're seeing, the first time that we hit... You know, we celebrated when we had our our hundredth customer. We celebrated when we had our thousandth customer. We I remember a really nice party when we had a hundred thousand customers. It was like it was amazing. You no, know? we were a very small team. We celebrated, etc. Now we're in the millions, and uh, and 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 the challenge just becomes larger. The responsibility becomes bigger, but the desire to basically build this out in a in a really meaningful way just grows over time, and that's uh, that's very exciting. No? So talking about building this in a really meaningful way, imagine that you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where. It's five years later, or maybe even seven years later, or whenever that is, and you wake up in that world where the vision of Bitso is fully realized. What does that world look like? Right. So, so the mission that we have for the company is that we want to make crypto useful. And you know, the, the, the measuring stick that I always try to use is my mom. My mom is a, it's an amazing individual, but for her, blockchain technology and Bitcoin are kind of irrelevant in her day-to-day basis. Whereas the internet is fundamentally, a techno- it's a technology that she fundamentally uses every day to connect with her grandchild, grandchildren, to connect with her sisters, with her brother, her kids, et cetera, et cetera. So the internet has been transformational for my mother, but crypto has not yet been transformational for my mother. If, if in five years I sit here and I see that my mom has day-to-day use for this technology through the services that we have built, then that's going to be the day that I'm going to be very happy. That's going to be the day that I'm going to say, we made this massive and we got my mom 
to use this on a regular basis and for our products and services to be relevant for her on a daily basis. We're already very relevant to certain segments of the population on a daily basis. We have people who trade ongoing. We have people who use us for payments. We have people who receive payments. Like we have a lot of freelancers, contractors, businesses that are getting paid on crypto. The rise of stable coins last year, these coins that basically maintain their parity against the US dollar, but you can transact them on a blockchain. Like the amount of volume that we're doing on those on the last year, it's just explosive. So we're already very relevant for a large portion of the population. But I believe that we still have a really long way to go. And I've always thought about my mom as a good measuring stick for when we're actually achieving in a meaningful way make to make crypto useful. So in terms of making crypto useful and Bitcoin, I mean, where do you think it's going to be maybe in five years? I mean, do you think, uh, because I mean, let's face it, taking a piece of paper out of your wallet, you know, seems a little bit archaic. So so where do you think, you know, all of this segment, you know, could be in, 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 in five years from now? Yeah, I think I think there's going to be a lot of stuff. I think Bitcoin is going to become a very clear store of value mechanism as it's becoming today. We're going to start seeing projects in the space become uh, significantly used for payments. And I think that's going to have a tremendous uh, advantage because commerce is just going to become more global and the ability to settle on real time is going to increase GDP throughout the world. And, and, and you know, countries that embrace this technology and build the right bridges, I think, are going to see their constituents um, or the people that live in those countries really, really benefited from this. We're speaking with partners who are thinking about, you know, real real-time streaming of payments to in, in the value chain. And those all of those things are incredibly fun and exciting to to think through. Um, and, and I think there's there's going to be a big, big opportunity in payments. I believe crypto companies are uniquely positioned to capture next generation banking and to evolve from just these crypto wallets or crypto exchanges into actually fully fledged financial services providers. And that I think is going to be incredibly fun and exciting to watch. And ultimately, I believe that there's going to be a complete reimagination of financial services. And some of them are going to work on top of Bitcoin. Some of them are going to work on top of crypto. Uh, you know, more generally, things we're, we're seeing incredibly fun stuff and meaningful stuff in Ethereum. And, uh, and I think slowly we're going to see a deconstruction of financial services and a construction on top of much better, like just much more efficient rails, much more efficient principles. It's just going to be um, a mindset change and the fundamentals are going to be different and it's going to be a paradigm shift. So for, I mean, I hear it all the time and, and I've been uh, following Bitcoin, I think since like 2013 or 2014. And uh, I remember, you know, since then, when I when I speak with people and and I tell them about Bitcoin, you know, they tell me that it's a, a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme, just like you were saying earlier. I mean, what 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 do you typically say to those people that have that type of mindset towards it? 
Yeah, look, there's people that we're never going to be able to convince. And there's people that are sort of on the fringe. For the people that are on the fringe, we try to educate them. We try to explain to them how the technology works. For example, there's a lot of misconception on how Bitcoins are created. And so when you explain to someone, you know, the step-by-step of how Bitcoins are created, how were they distributed or what was the method or what is the method that we've chosen to distribute them uh, or that Satoshi Nakamoto chose to distribute them, the, all of those things start giving people clarity and it starts sort of like changing the narrative. You know, we, I've, I've known people that, you know, I had friends in business school that I would tell them like, look, you don't have to agree with me, but just put in a thousand dollars in Bitcoin. And if it goes to zero, well, you can be angry at me in the future, but if, but I think it has an asymmetric return, right? Those people would have made their, their, their money a hundred times, 80 times. I'm not sure anymore at the prices that we're at. And, uh, and, and there were people that I just could never convince, even though they were good friends, even though we had, you know, good report, they just were locked in a version of reality. And those people are hard to sort of change, uh, change their mind. But, um, but what we have found is that education is a key component into getting people to understand and react positively to this technology. And, uh, and we have a big commitment to that as an organization. We spent a, a, a fair amount of time in education. If you go to edu.bitso.com you can find the whole educational portal and um and and we basically try to be a resource for individuals who are interested in learning more about the technology that's amazing well i'm glad that you guys are pushing the education because that's a that's very much needed so one of the questions that that i typically ask the guests that come on the show is if you had the opportunity of going back in time let's say we put you in 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 this time machine and basically we take you to that moment where you are at the Harvard doing your MBA and thinking about launching something of your own. If you were able to have that ear of that younger self and tell your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? <laughs> well, for me, that answer is very easy, Alejandro. I would just say buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that's a very no, but understanding the the spirit of your question. Look, I think that what I would tell my younger self is something I already knew back then, but it it's never enough to hear it again. I would have told myself, "Look, you're about to go into one of the most demanding, challenging, and difficult journeys in your life." but it's going to be at the same time the most rewarding thing you could be doing and building. And so suck up the tough times, enjoy the good times, and go out and build this thing. I love it. I love it. So, Daniel, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Absolutely. I can be reached uh, on Twitter at Vogelbeat, V-O-G-E-L-B-I-T. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty active there. And so if you, if you have any questions or would like to chat or whatever, just um, send me a tweet and, uh, and, and I'll engage over there. Amazing. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, and thank you for your audience for the interest. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.